welcome to the new season of Tea and Tattle, a podcast that celebrates female creativity and storytelling. I'm your host, Miranda Mills, and I'm so delighted to be back to the podcast after a break over the autumn. I know many listeners have been impatient for Tea and Tattle to return, but I had to take a break over the autumn as I took on some extra work that turned out to be a lot more time consuming than I'd initially thought it would be. However, I'm happy to say the podcast is now back and I've got a wonderful lineup of guests for the winter season. So thank you all for your patience. I've also decided to reintroduce tea reads combined with my Culture Corner recommendations in a special episode that I'll publish every month. So do look out for a special December tea reads edition in a few weeks where I'll share a favourite short read and some recommendations for the festive season. But back to this week on the podcast, today I'm joined by the writer and knitter Esther Ratter to talk about Esther's first book, This Golden Fleece, A Journey Through Britain's Knitted History, which saw Esther travelling across Britain from Shetland to the Channel Islands in search of the stories behind Britain's long history of wool and knitting. To complete her book, Esther took a year off work to travel, knit and research and in This Golden Fleece, she spins a fascinating tale of her own personal journey as a knitter as she takes on a fresh knitting project each month throughout the year, as well as the stories she unearths of knitting traditions that have been passed down throughout the centuries. Today on the podcast, Esther tells me about what inspired her project, how knitting your own clothes can be a powerful political act, how women have plied their needles to aid change in the world, and some of her own favourite British yarn companies. I so enjoyed Esther's book, so it was a delight to have her on the show, and chatting with her inspired me to go to Loop Yarn Shop in London to buy some Shetland wool for a new knitting project of my own. I filmed my shopping expedition for my new YouTube channel, so if you'd like to see the video, then I've included the link in the show notes for this episode, or you can go straight to my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Miranda Mills to watch straight away. But for now, let's get started with the show. Hello, Esther. Thank you so much for being on Tea and Tattle today. No problem. It's lovely to be here, Miranda. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for coming on. I absolutely loved your book, This Golden Fleece. So I've been really looking forward to this chat. And I have to say, when I first picked up your book, I think it was in Daunt Books in London, and I read the blurb, I thought, this is just such an incredible idea. I mean, what a wonderful premise to sort of take (laughs) a year's sabbatical from work and go off and explore knitting throughout the UK. But what prompted you to do that? What really ignited the idea of this project? project for you? Well, it was a combination of things, really. So I have a degree in English language and literature. And so I learned how to basically use language to unpick our kind of history, um, because it's kind of palimpsest for our collective experience. And then I'd spent ten, the last 10 years or the 10 years after my degree working in literary heritage museums. So I was really fascinated by history. Uh, and then 
we had to move to Fife because my husband got a job at the University of St. Andrews. Uh, and so I had to take a job nearby and it was at the university working in the fundraising department. And I just hated it. I was wildly ill-suited to it. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, I was coming home each night uh, really upset and just saying, I, I don't like doing this. And I was doing a lot of knitting to help, you know, with the stress of it, really. Uh, I was actually looking for a book myself to read about the history of knitting. Um, mm. I really struggled to find it. The, there is one by a man called Richard Rupp. It's out of print now, and it's quite hard to find secondhand copies. Um, and also, it isn't a narrative story. You know, it's a it's a kind of history, um, kind of quite a dry history, although very interesting if you're fascinated by knitting. So I thought, well, if I'm looking for this book, other knitters like me will be looking for this book too. So I said to my husband, right, okay, I think I'm going to give it a go. And yeah. he said, Financially, yes, we can manage on just my salary for a year. So off you go. You've got 12 months to, you know, just give it your all. Uh, and then I was really lucky in the beginning of January, there is a Twitter competition run by a writer development agency in Scotland called Expo North. And the competition is Tweet Your Pitch. So I sent a tweet that was, um, you know, I had a journey through Britain's knitted history going from the Shetland Isles all the way down to the Channel Islands. Um, and it was as simple as that. Uh, but fortunately, my agent was watching all these tweets come in and she saw that and her sister's a fantastic knitter. And she thought, oh, my sister would love that. And I think other people will. And it went from there, really. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I love that story. Well, and I think, I mean, I've so enjoyed your book. I know lots of people have. And I think what's wonderful is you didn't just write a rather dry history of knitting in the UK. You really brought a personal element to it and it's also as much about your own journey throughout the UK and also in becoming a better knitter. How did you first learn to knit? Well I have quite a kind of funny way really. So when I was five my family moved to a sheep farm in Suffolk and my mum is a trained spinner and weaver, she has a degree in it Uh, and when we were moved to the sheep farm me and my brothers were quite young children and we found all these little bits of wool stuck to the fences and so we collect them up and we bring them into mum and she would card them with her brushes and she would spin them into yarn and we just thought this was magic we loved watching her do this but she did let us try to use the spinning wheel but it's actually quite hard for young hands to do that to have the coordination to do the foot treadle and the hands together and to her new uh, well we weren't allowed to go anywhere near that <laughs> um, anyway but my best friend's mum was uh, is still um, a fantastic knitter and she made a lot of my friends clothes and hats and you know bits and pieces for her dolls uh, and I just thought this was brilliant and so she taught me how to knit when I was about seven uh, and then yeah I've not really put down my needle since. Well I'm very much only a beginner knitter myself but I found your book really inspiring and I loved that how you took us through the whole process of knitting. I mean you went back to visit your mum during that year and learnt how to spin from her for instance which mm -hmm. I found really interesting to sort of see the full spectrum of the process. But your book really made clear how vital wool has been um, within Britain's history. Would you explain a little bit about why wool and knitting has been so important in building Britain, Britain's wealth within history? Absolutely. So it really goes back um, to at least the Roman period. Um, so before that, Britain uh, had only limited contact with the continent. And so the type of sheep that were indigenous to the British Isles uh, were somewhat different to in other places. 
And when the Romans uh, came to Britain, they brought their own type of sheep, but they found that the British sheep had amazingly soft fleeces. Uh, by the third century AD, there was a document issued uh, called an Edict on Maximum Prices, and there it noted that the British woolen rugs were prized above all others in the Roman world. Um, and it really went from there. So by the 14th century, Edward III had realised that British fleece was super important to the economy, and he decided to make sure that it was in the uppermost in the minds of the lawmakers at the time. So he put a wool sack, a sack stuffed full of British wool, in the House of Lords, uh, and it's still used to, to this day. It's what the judges sit on um, when the state opening of Parliament. Um, it's no longer stuffed with just British fleece, however. It's actually now fleeced from across the Commonwealth. So, yeah, it's a really, really long history. Yeah, really fascinating, though. And I think it's I, I really enjoyed the part where you went to the House of Lords and you saw it there mm. um, still today. But, yeah, I was so interested in reading how important wool has been um, within Britain. It really is a sort of land built on sheep in many ways. It absolutely is. But would you mind reading an extract from your book for us? Of course. Um, well, I think I'll probably read a bit from the beginning so that you can sort of get a flavour of how the journey starts. Oh, wonderful. So I'm lucky in that my in-laws live in Grasmere in the Lake District. And so we were visiting them at Christmas or just after Christmas. Uh, it was cold, wintry weather, and we went out for a walk. So here we are. New Year's Day dawned clear and cold, and we strode out to shake off the old year's languor. The frost-nipped air blew in chilly celebration as we got out of the car at Rusland Cross and took the first steps of the year towards Highkenthwaite. Bundled into coats, with scarves wrapping us like untidy parcels, we were pushed along by brisk winter winds. After an hour, we reached the wood at Heald Brow, ringed with a wooden fence and topped with rusting wire. Caught in the fence's barbs were tufts of wool, silver in the weak winter sun. Sheep at the bounds of their territory scratched their itches here, leaving traces of themselves on the wire. I pulled away some fibres and rolled them on my palm. Grey, black and white, the strands curled in my hand. They felt waxy against my fingers, soft and greasy with lanolin. I balled the fibres in my pocket and carried them with me like a charm. Cumbria is a landscape shaped by sheep. The county's hilly slopes require a particular type of farming, upland shepherding, quite different from its lowland cousin. Old Westmoreland and Cumberland's dry stone walls enclose the more fertile land around farms and keep the sheep away from the valley's cultivated fields so they can graze on the fells. This higher pasture is common land. Sheep are free to graze as far as their feet can take them. Native Herdwick sheep need no fences. They are heafed or hefted, equipped with an internal compass that's calibrated to their own acreage. By half past three, the gloaming began to gather in driving us indoors. Warm and weary, I let the weather pin me to the sofa, where I looked again through my Christmas presents. Inside a paper bag with the tag, Love from Mum, were four balls of woolen yarn, peaty black, charcoal, dove grey and white. Banded with paper round the middle, this was Shetland Heritage yarn from Jameson and Smith. Printed on the yarn band was a line of tiny symbols. 
a shepherd's crook, a hand dipped in water, an iron crossed through, and, my favourite, three tiny Shetland sheep with horns and curling fleeces staring down the crook. Three renegades from Britain's northeastern edge, their horns a proud trumpet and a warning. I took a sniff. A strong outdoor smell, rich and greasy, caught my nostrils. It was an unmistakably sheepy funk, that same scent from Heelbrow Wood. Woolly fibres waved and snaked away from the Yarm's central strand, black flecked with white and cream specks on brown. But this was soft and sturdy Shetland oo. The W and L clipped off the English word. Familiar, yet strange, the wool had come from among some 700 crofts and farms in Shetland's scattered archipelago, caught between the Atlantic Ocean and the North Sea. My four balls of yarn, fading dark to light, yielded to the pressure in my palm, then bounced back, comfortable in their shape. My fingers prickled with the urge to knit them up. What would I make from this hardy wool? Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you. No problem. One of the things I loved most reading your book were your wonderful descriptions of landscape. And you travelled to parts of Britain that I've never visited, but now really want to. And I just found it fascinating to learn more about the knitting traditions that you came across um, throughout your travels. But I also thought that you seemed to be quite ideally placed yourself living in Scotland. And I wondered if your perception of Scotland changed at all as you learnt more about its wool history. Absolutely. I think I didn't, well, it was kind of by chance, obviously, that I ended up here. Um, And it's really what I didn't uh, kind of appreciate when I began the research for the book was just how important wool was across the whole of Scotland. And and in ways that I really hadn't anticipated. So, for example, there's the tiny village of Brewer in Sutherland. Mm-hmm. And that was the first place um, in Scotland to get mains electricity um, for all the houses because there was a woolen mill there. And so that was um, run by electricity. There was a hydro station put up to, to power it. And so everybody got electricity in their homes, which is an amazing thing yeah. that the woolen industry had changed people's lives um, in that way. Uh, and then, of course, there's the Highland Clearances, and I knew that the clearances, obviously, they were the sheep were put onto the land and people were cleared off. But I didn't understand or appreciate the nuances of that. So, for example, in Gaelock in West Scots, um, there wasn't actually that uh, much of a movement by people from that area because the improving landowning family, the Mackenzies, made a conscious effort to help um, the crofters basically continue to support themselves through other means. And so the Dowager Lady Mackenzie taught the women of Gaelock how to, well, she brought a woman from Sky to teach them how to spin and to knit to a high standard. And she set up a whole industry around stocking knitting or kilt hose, really. Um, uh, again, this meant that during the period of the clearances, that particular parish had virtually no movement away from it, which is completely in contrast to the rest of the Highland clearances where so many thousands of people were forcibly moved or chose to move themselves. Mm. Yeah, I found that really fascinating. I, I didn't know a lot about the clearances, so it was really shocking to read that part of the book um, for mm. the people that who did have to resettle and then and how they had they often moved to more sort of fishing villages and had to sort of relearn a way of life um, but it also affected mm. what they 
knitted too. I mean, I really loved your descriptions of knitting a gansey, for instance, that kind of fisherman, (laughs) which sounded like it was really quite a project. You knitted lots of different things throughout your year. I mean, from like a bikini to many hats to this gigantic gansey. Which was your favourite thing that you knitted and why? Oh, that is a tricky question. Um, I think actually the Gansey ear has to stand up there among my favourites, um, just because it really did take me actually almost the entire year to finish. Yeah. <laughs> I had this idea at the beginning that I do a project a month, um, but then when I found out that a professional Gansey knitters used to take between six weeks to two months to knit a Gansey for sale, I really should have <laughs> curbed my ambition a little bit. However, uh, I did get it finished within the year. My, I made it for my dad. Yeah. Uh, and I made it for him because he is a gardener. And so he's out in all weathers. And Gansies are very much working people's garments. You know, they were made to withstand a lot of wear and tear, to be very warm, very insulating, because wool can absorb up to 35% of its own weight and moisture before it starts losing any insulating capacity. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. It really is. Anyway, and also um, the Gansies tell a story because they have uh, a lot of information included in them. So often you find people's initials and perhaps the number of the children is made uh, demonstrated in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then usually um, it's kind of the yoke and the chest of the Gansey, which is, has particular patterns. And there's a lot of debate about why these patterns were put there. You know, were they so that bodies could be identified after men had been washed off the boat and you know so their bodies could be brought home I didn't find any examples of that um but I think there is an element of people wanting to knit motifs you know that reminded people of home that had that Mm. connection to home so for example Gandhi's from the Whitby area often have a sort of zigzag pattern which is said to be kind of mimicking the steps that go from Whitby Harbour up to the Abbey on the clifftop and I think that is a nice thing that kind of knitting for somebody and trying to produce a garment that really wraps them in literal warmth but it also metaphorically wraps them in your love because you've taken that time to create that thing for them Mm. and and I think actually the other thing that I was really proud of having knitted was for my um daughter as she turned out Mm. to be because spoiler alert I get pregnant in chapter 11 (laughs) as you know um and I was given this amazing yarn I visited a farm on Orkney um Burnside farm run by a farmer called Jane Cooper and they have some of the Britain's rarest sheep uh, breeds that are farmed there called Borrares mm. and they originate from the St Kildan island of Borrares and they ended up there because in the 1980s the Roslyn Institute outside Edinburgh decided to basically study these sheep um, uh, because they were so genetically isolated from the other type of sheep that are farmed elsewhere in the British Isles mm. and because they'd been fending for themselves the St Kildans um, were evacuated at their own request from the island or the islands rather to the mainland in 1930 and a lot of the sheep were left there so you had sort of 50 years of the sheep fending for themselves and they were fine yeah. um, they, were, you know, they could they self-sheared and you know the wool just wow. fell off at the right time anyway I was when I went to visit the farm Jane gave me this amazing gift of the first ever yarn like the last skein of the first ever yarn she'd had spun from her borrays and um, which had come back from after Rosalind uh, Institute had studied them mm. uh, they didn't take them back to St Kilda they gave them to different farms and um, and so she gave me this this yarn and it was you know it's just so special it's only sort of 30 breeding ewes and there's not even enough to spin it every year sometimes it's every two or every three years and uh, so I had this amazing yarn from these rare sheep 
And then I went to Shetland. And it, well, I was doing this journey on the boat up from Aberdeen um, going up. And there I learned how to knit traditional Shetland haps, so sort of shawls, basically. Yeah. And so I thought when I when I got back, I found out that I was pregnant. So the baby had been on this journey with me, yeah. you know, albeit in very, very small form. Uh, so I decided to use the yarn and then the skills that I'd learned in Shetland to make this beautiful um, uh, hap and shawl to wrap my baby in. So yeah, that's all. And again, another really special, meaningful project. Oh, absolutely! I mean, a, a, what a wonderful conclusion to your year as well. <laughs> that was a sort of very happy <laughs> conclusion. Yes, it was a very happy. But yes, I, I mean, I, I adore how personal you can make knitted gifts, and I know that you did that for your dad as well with his Gansey. You knitted mm-hmm. uh, personal motifs for him things that really meant something to him but you can also make mm-hmm. knitted garments exact too you can make the perfect measurements for someone and you spoke about measuring your father and adapting the jumper pattern the gansey pattern to suit his requirements but you also yes. <laughs> wrote about how knitting made you more aware of your own body when you knitted mm. yourself a bikini um you had to take measurements for that and just become much more aware of your physical self in a way too and I found that really interesting because it's so different from how we usually shop for clothes now where you might have a sort of general idea of size range but you don't pay much attention really to how clothes sort of fit perfectly Yes, I think um, that kind of awareness of your own body and other people's bodies is something that we lose when we stop making clothes for them. And I think that um, it was quite interesting, you know, to find out that I'm not just sort of some kind of standard size that yeah. someone in a, in a company has decided is a size. Actually, my body is made up of these tiny measurements and the space that it takes up yeah. Um, is, yeah, you know, it's, it's a huge mix of genetics and lifestyle and, and everything all coming together. Um, and it's quite a political act, really, to make your own clothes because you're very consciously saying, I am not going to take somebody else's idea of what I should look like mm-hmm. uh, and the colours that they've chosen or the style that they've chosen or the shape of the clothes. I'm actually going to make something that's very, very much suited specifically to me. Um, and making the bikini, you know, I, I made it in yellow because of the itsy bitsy teeny with the yellow polka dot bikini. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The bikini itself, it was a pattern from the 1940s because it, the clothes were rationed right up until that point um, after, during and after the war. Um, so everybody would make, or not everybody, but a lot of people would make their own clothes mm-hmm. um, to get around the problems of rationing. And so they would have had so much an, a, such a more intimate knowledge of themselves and their families. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think that people who... Um, make their own clothes today often it's done not for absolute necessity mm-hmm. uh, you know you couldn't necessarily buy a bikini so that's why people knitted them yeah. um, but today it's quite a, a statement to say like I am going to take control over that um, thing myself and also it's a statement against consumerism of having lots and lots and lots of things yes. because it takes a long time to have, make a jumper yeah. you know <laughs> uh, and therefore it's more meaningful once you've made it particularly um, if you've made it for somebody who wants it, yes. or for yourself, yes. um, because you've gone through that process of selecting a yarn, a pattern, you've spent hours and hours and hours making it. It's not something that you're going to take one look at and think, 
Oh no, you know, I don't. <laughs> I don't fancy that. I'll, I'll think I'll have another one in a different colour. No, exactly, exactly. It really embodies the sort of idea of the slow fashion movement and it's a absolutely more ethical fashion. But I find it interesting too how knitting can become quite a political act, as you say, um, sometimes. And reading mm. your book, I was really fascinated to learn more about the role knitting has played for women protesters. Would you tell me a bit about how women historically and even today have plied their needles to aid revolution and change in the world? Absolutely. So I think everybody, or a lot of people anyway, um, have heard of the the tricoteurs, um, the women of the French Revolution who uh, would... Well, the kind of image of them is knitting in front of the guillotine, watching their heads drop Mm -hmm. um, as people are executed. I really found this quite an arresting image and I wanted to understand, well, A, did it actually happen? And B, if if it didn't, why had it become this big kind of cultural image in people's mind? Um, And I think that's partly because it, it actually wasn't just knitting that people were doing at all. And there are a lot of different workings with fabrics and textiles and making bandages from old linen, um, sewing, lots of things. But that kind of, I think the reason it kind of sticks in people's mind is it's a sort of transgressive thing because knitting is widely assumed to be quite a kind of domestic, safe, sort of personal thing that people do. Um, and so to sort of take it out there into the public sphere makes it much more noticeable. Um, and I think what people make is also a kind of important point. Um, so, for example, in the anti-nuclear protests at Greenham Common uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, um, a lot of women were who, who went on those protests were skilled crafters. Mm. And they, they didn't just use knitting, they also used embroidery and other techniques um, to sort of wrap uh, the area around them in symbols of their of their love and their concern as mothers um mm-hmm. and then this carries on so uh, to when donald trump was inaugurated there was a knitting shop in california that decided to make a kind of visual symbol of protest because there were the women's marches which were planned you know for people kind of taking a stance against the politics of donald trump particularly against his attitudes towards women and they came up with this very simple idea of a pussy hat. Um, so it's basically a strip of fabric that you then seam down the sides and when you put it on, it looks like it has little ears. So that in part explains the name. Um, uh, and it was a really successful thing. Millions of them uh, were knitted and made. And it wasn't just the people who were on the marches whose voices could be heard mm-hmm. because people who couldn't get there would send these pussy hats to the women, to the protesters to wear. So they were kind of having their voices registered. And it was also very visually engaging. So there was many, many photographs that were shared widely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also kind of had a life of its own. So when there were the anti-Trump demonstrations in London shortly afterwards, um, people wore their pussy hats to that. And the V&A decided to collect a pussy hat for their permanent collection. Oh, wow. uh, so it's now there and kind of enshrined in the nation's history, oh. which I think, yeah, it's quite an amazing and powerful thing. Yes. Well, yes, there's, there's a long history of it, but it's, uh, it's certainly not, as I say, this sort of quite domestic thing. 
quite a powerful no, voice of it. Exactly. Right? And I loved how you drew attention to that in your book. And you wrote about knitting your own pussy hat um, for a protest as well. And yeah, I really found that section absolutely fascinating. Now, as I've said, I'm not a very experienced knitter myself, but I have noticed, I think, a real revival of interest in knitting, especially over the past decade or so. And I feel a lot of women of my generation and younger are actually taking to knitting and other domestic crafts actually generally more and more Mm -hmm. and I think what's so exciting is to see that there are a lot of artisan yarn companies cropping up it seems that people are really starting to appreciate beautiful wool again and also wanting to make things for themselves but I wanted to ask you your opinion have you noticed any shifts in knitting over the past decade or so and what do you think the future really holds for knitters? Absolutely. I agree with you that there has been a real shift and a real kind of upsurge in interest. And actually, if you look historically over the 20th century, you do sort of see this quite often. There's um, you sort of have a sort of 30 to 30 year kind of wave where one generation is into it, then the next generation reacts against it and isn't into it. And then the one after that picks it up again. Um, so it's quite a natural kind of cycle. However, I think that there's the real parallel with the slow food movement and the organic movement in farming. Um, Because, of course, yarn itself can be organic and people are very much aware now of about sustainability of fabric and fibres. So um, wanting to know where a yarn has come from, wanting to know that the farming practice has been good, wanting to know that the yarn isn't going to shed microplastics into the water when it's washed. Um, So I think the future for yarn is to continue to become a lot more sustainable and a lot more... um, transparent in its process and where it comes from so that people know that it's yarn from Shetland or yarn from the borders or yarn from Cotswolds or uh, and I think that that is a really interesting uh, change that yeah 15 20 years ago um, would have been almost unthinkable because a lot of the bigger yarn spinning businesses that had been working the earlier and middle part of the 20th century were closing down Mm -hmm. and yeah, there seems to be very little future for it. But there are some amazing companies who have been working to keep British wool on the map. And one of those is West Yorkshire Spinners in Yorkshire. Uh, and they have you know, very consciously decided to go against um, this sort of decline that was happening in the 1990s. And in 1997, they set up their company um, to spin British yarn in, in Yorkshire. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, they've gone from strength to strength with yeah. that. And I think the other, the other thing which I've really noticed a trend in is... Um, with uh, wanting to embrace diversity of designers, because I think there's a general image of the of knitting on people who knit as kind of middle-aged, middle-class women knitting for leisure. And actually, that's you know, there's a long history of it being a working-class um, profession, uh, and it isn't just white people who knit, which you know, sounds silly to say, of course that would be the case, but a lot of our designers are white, and a lot of the models for knitwear are white. And so there's been a real upsurge in wanting to have more diversity of designers, of models, of people knitting and kind of, yeah, broaden the appeal in that way. Yes, that has been a very big issue within the community of knitters within Mm. social media over the past year or two, especially, I think, and it has sparked such important conversations around diversity and around who knitters really are too yes but do you have any favorite yarn companies that you could recommend to tea and tattle listeners so i think that uh uist wool from the outer hebrides they work with wool from the hebrides they spin the most amazing um 
kind of textured and uh, a lot of it is undyed and they don't uh, currently they're not offering a huge amount of dyed yarn uh, and it's amazing the range of colors that you can get just by working with natural colored fleeces and, and then Garcenor who are a company based in Wales they only spin organic yarn so again it's brilliant for people who are really concerned with both animal welfare standards and the environmental impact um, of, of sheep farming and so they do a huge range of different breed-specific yarns, um, so people can get to know, you know, why uh, different areas of the UK have these particular sheep breeds and what they're actually like, and they can really experience that range. And then Life Yarn on yarns, who are based in the borders, they specialise in using very common sheep breeds, so like a backface, um, which is, you know, it's you'll see it everywhere around Scotland, but actually a lot of their wool at the moment still goes um, either to be burnt um, or into to carpets and not into hand spinning yarn and the, the lady who runs it is really in, uh, engaged in trying to get it back on the map for, for knitters finally i think the company i used the most during writing the book was yarn from jameson and smith in shetland and um, really it's the you know the extract that i read refers to to the yarn from them and they do a fantastic range of color uh, they use shetland sheep um which is brilliant uh, it's a very strong wool but it's also kind of very soft um, and lovely to work with so, yeah, I think those are my sort of oh, few. <laughs> wonderful recommendations. Thank you. And I'll try to put links to them in the show notes for this episode as well so listeners can check them out. But, Esther, at the end of my interviews, I always ask my teen tattle guests to give a cultural recommendation. So I'd love to hear about one thing that you've been enjoying lately, whether it's a book or a podcast, a magazine, whatever. What, what is a cultural recommendation you could give today? Oh, I think it would be the Woolwork podcast. Uh, so this used to be um, Knit British, but actually uh, Louise, who's run it, has just rebranded it and is relaunching it as Woolwork because it's not just about a British yarn. You know, there's a huge range of stuff that she looks at. Uh, and it's just fantastic. It's so you learn so much. And in fact, it was really helpful in me shaping my journey through the book uh, because she's always hunting out, you know, specialist yarn um, producers and designers. And she's very good at running interactive um, what knit-alongs oh. that people, that listeners can take part in. And there's a knitting website, Ravelry, where she shares the images of what people have made and she talks about it on the podcast. So you really can get a sense of the broader knitting community and be a real active part of it through oh. Through listening to her oh, podcast. that's a wonderful recommendation I'll definitely check that out thank you very much no problem so what's next for you are, are you able to share any upcoming sort of future book projects or book tours and events yes so uh, throughout 2020 I'll be traveling through the UK um, at, appearing at a variety of both yarn festivals and literature festivals and um, I'm starting that with Pitlockry Winter Words in February oh. um, for anyone who's in the Perthshire area. Uh, I won't list them all here, but if you want to go to my website, estherutter.com, you can see all the different dates and things that are coming up. <laughs> the other thing I'm working on is hopefully a, what will become a second book. Um, I spent part of this summer in Norway uh, for my husband's work, and, but I was able to do some writing and research whilst I was there. Oh. So there'll be a Norwegian flavour. Wow. Well, I, I can't wait to hear more about that some of my family uh, some of my family ancestors are from Norway so, yeah so I'm always interested in anything Norwegian and I can't wait to hear more news about that later on hopefully in 2020 but so if listeners would like to keep up with you and your 
future books and your events where's best to find you online you mentioned your website but is there anywhere else where people can keep up with you yes i'm pretty active uh, on instagram and twitter so on instagram my handle is at this golden fleece same title as the book and then on twitter i'm at this gold fleece so yeah do yeah follow me on there uh, and um, yeah and chat to me as well you know, i love to hear from readers about what their experiences of the book and of knitting are oh wonderful well i'll put links to all of the social media channels and your website that you mentioned in the show notes so listeners can find them there as well but esther it's been such a joy talking to you today thank you so much again for coming on tea and tattle Not at all. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Miranda. Thank you for your interesting questions too. And I hope that the listeners really enjoy hearing what we've had to say. Oh, thank you. I'm sure that they shall. And it's wonderful inspiration for the winter season ahead of us. So thank you. Yes, it's a perfect time of year, isn't it? For for more knitting. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Tea and Tattle. Thanks so much again to Esther for her fabulous interview. For all the relevant links, check out the show notes for this episode at teaandtattlepodcast.com forward slash home forward slash 119. And remember, if you'd like to watch my video about my own shopping adventures inspired by Esther's book, then do check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Miranda Mills, or you can find the direct link to the video in this episode's show notes. If you've enjoyed my chat with Esther, then I'd love it if you shared this episode with a friend who you think would also find it interesting, or please consider leaving a review of Tea and Tattle on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, as great reviews help other people to find the show. If you'd like to get in touch, then come and find Tea and Tattle on Instagram at Tea and Tattle Podcast, where I share the latest podcast news, sneak peeks of upcoming guests, and things I think Tea and Tattle listeners would love to. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep well, be joyful, and stay in touch. Music.